All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got the great Daniel Larison, regular contributor, contributing editor, something cool like that, at antiwar.com. And his latest is titled, U.S. Militarism Should Have Died With The Soviet Union. Excellent title, excellent article. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm uh, doing well, Scott. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Uh, happy to have you here. You know, I'm kind of disappointed with the world because it seemed to me like everybody should have made such a big deal about the 30th anniversary of the end of the Soviet Union. I was checking my wristwatch. Do I have the right year here? 91, yep. 21, right? Yeah, the, the final end of the USSR. I mean, the wall came down what, in late 88. It took a little while for the whole Cold War and thing and whatever, but there was virtually no violence except in Romania where the leader and his wife were taken out back and shot. But essentially, this was an absolute miracle that the USSR absolutely just ceased to exist. And uh, here's the 30th anniversary, and I love the way you phrased the article because I know that there's a history that you're kind of calling back to there, that there were a bunch of guys, and including on the right, who said, okay, confronting Soviet communism was worth it. But now that that's over, this is a phrase from Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the UN, Jean Kirkpatrick, at the time before she changed her mind, that now we can be a normal country in a normal time. And, and Pat Buchanan, the right-wing anti-communist hawk, said, give up NATO, come home America, forget the whole thing. It's not so dangerous a world out there and, and we don't have to prevent it from hurting us or any of these things. And there was a real big fight about that. And I have to tell you, I was young, but I was very interested in politics and that kind of thing at the time. But boy, did I never get informed by TV about anything about this paleoconservative movement as it was at the time, as they fashioned themselves at the time. These anti-war conservatives who demanded the abolition of NATO and the end of the empire at the end of the Cold War there. So I was hoping that we could start with that. If you could, you know, tell us about your memory of that time and a little bit of the history of who those men were at that time. You quote uh, George Kennan here, hawk of all hawks from the days of the Cold War, who turned right around as soon as it ended. So the floor is yours, sir. Sorry for that extra long introduction to this subject, but I'm dying to hear what you have to say about it all. Sure, no, that, that's fine. Uh, yeah, in the, the early 90s, uh, as the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, as it, as it dismantled itself, really, uh, you, you did have a significant number of people on the right who looked around the world and realized that the, the main, the, the great struggle, that the, the twilight struggle of the Cold War, that they had organized themselves around politically, that they had uh, dedicated themselves to for all those decades, had finally come to an end. And, and it had come to an end in a, in a generally good way. Uh, communism collapsed across Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. 
many new countries uh, either reclaimed or established their independence for the first time. And as you were saying, it was it was luckily mostly nonviolent. There, there of course, were some armed conflicts uh, around the periphery of the Soviet Union, and there uh, were some uh, conflicts later in the 90s that came out of that. But it was it was remarkable for how peaceful it was, considering uh, what a large empire uh, it, the Soviet Union was, uh, and how many nations were subject to it. And so uh, th- there was a, a hope, I think. Uh, among paleoconservatives and traditional conservatives more generally, that now that that, that struggle was over, uh, the U.S. could now uh, return to minding its own business more, and that it didn't have to bear this enormous burden that it had taken up because they, you know, at the time in the late 40s, early 50s, many Americans in both parties believed that it was necessary for the security of Western Europe and, and uh, Asia uh, to take up that burden, but that that burden was no longer necessary. And uh, and, the, and the militaristic policies that went with that were no longer necessary. Uh, I remember uh, Joe Sobrin writing somewhere in the, the mid-late 90s about the, the Pentagon budget, which at that time was much lower than it is today, uh, saying you don't, you don't need to have a budget this large uh, for the actual defense of the United States. Uh, if all you're trying to do is defend our security against physical threats, you can stand to have a much smaller military budget than what we have. Uh, but of course, as we know, uh, none of those burdens were laid down. Uh, in fact, the burdens just kept increasing and growing, uh, and along with it, the military budget. And uh, and so that's it's really one of the great missed opportunities in modern U.S. history, where we we could have chosen uh, a, a less costly, a less destructive path going forward, but uh, we we simply continued on the path that we were on, and. Uh, you know, failed to realize the, the danger of imperial overstretch that that represented. And so that was, you know, that was the warning that people like Buchanan uh, were sounding uh, when he ran for the first time uh, for president in 1992, and then again when he ran uh, in 96, and then again in 2000. And it was actually the, the 2000 campaign where I really became more fully aware of his ideas or his arguments uh, when he wrote his book, Republic Not an Empire, uh, talking about U.S. history and how U.S. foreign policy had uh, grown into the imperial policy that we've seen over the last 100, 120 years. And, uh, and that's the, the foreign policy that I realized was was leading us astray, was leading us uh, to to the, the ruinous wars that we ended up in uh, in the first part of this century. Uh, and of course, we didn't know that those were coming at the time that that book came out, but uh, it it kind of... It was kind of a warning that it was it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing of it, right, is to go back and read all the people who got this right in real time. Um, you know, there's a great video of the Committee to Prevent a Mideast Holocaust. <laughs> and it's Pat and Sobrin and Sheldon Richmond, my Padna at the Institute. Yeah. And uh, I forget who else. One more. And they're all there trying to stop Iraq War One. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I remember from that time is all the scaremongering about Japan and Germany again. That, oh, oh sure. no, with the end of the Cold War, who's going to be our enemy next? And, you know, the, the Japanese are making these cars cheaper than American companies can make them, so we might have to go to war with them, I guess. And who knows what's going to happen with Germany now? And I guess the idea... Now people really do believe this, don't they, Dana, that... 
if the USA is not holding the whole world down, it's all just going to spring up and go after us. Yeah, anything less than that is appeasing Hitler, man. And so we got to stay out there on guard at all times against all, really. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the idea that gets put out there. And I mean, and I, I do remember when uh, I was young, there, there was this great fear that Japan was going to dominate us and was going to start uh, dictating terms to us. Uh, and that, you know, that ended up obviously not taking place at all. Um, and so, the, you know, one of the things to take away from the, the last 30 years of, of threat inflation and, and fear mongering is that pretty much every major threat coming down the pike that the, the fear mongers have tried to build up as the next great, as the next Hitler, as the next great menace to our security ha has either proven to be ridiculously weak and inconsequential or, or simply hasn't existed at all. I mean, of course, we, we saw that with the, the Iraq war, especially, uh, but it's been true of, of pretty much every threat that people have tried to hype uh, since the Soviet Union went away. And they've been trying to hype all these threats because you need something on that scale to justify the scale of our militaristic policies. And and there's simply nothing that does the job. They're, they're really working hard to try to make China fit into that slot now, to, to make China into uh, the new uh, superpower adversary. But I'm not sure that the Chinese are actually going to play ball and, and fill that role. They're, they're not, I don't think they're interested in doing the things that the China hawks imagine that they want to do. And so that it's a real problem for them uh, when the, the new enemy doesn't want to actually be the next Soviet Union. Right. Yeah, I love it when, uh, I forgot what year it was, but I mean, this has happened a few times, but it seems like this is a specific tactic of Putin's that right when the Americans are hawking it up the most, he'll cut $10 billion from the defense budget and just be like, look, he's doing everything he can to not play the game. You know? Right, well, and, and one of the things we see, uh, lo looking back to the 90s, you had people presciently warning about how provocative NATO expansion was and how dangerous it was long-term and that it would eventually make Russia react. Uh, you had Kennan making these arguments uh, against the first round of expansion. Uh, and and he's, I think he's been completely vindicated by the events of the last 20, 25 years. Uh, of course, he, he passed away at, at the start of the century, so he, hasn't, he didn't see that vindication, but uh, he, he clearly has been vindicated in that he had a, a much better sense of what Russia was prepared to tolerate and what Russia uh, would, would react against. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we also see with the way that Russia is behaving right now is... They're, they're almost always reacting to things that we're doing. So we, we funnel weapons into Ukraine. We engage in lots of military exercises on their borders uh, in their region. Uh, and so then they respond to that. And then when they respond, everybody freaks out and treats it as though it's come out of the blue, as though there's no rational explanation for why it happened. Uh, when, in fact, you can, you can follow the timeline quite clearly just over the last year of why these buildups have happened when they happened. Um, and, and so the, the one of the important things people need to take away from what we're seeing now with Russia is that Russia has actually not been some kind of hyper-aggressive adventurist uh, state in terms of its foreign policy. It, it tends to be uh, fairly risk-averse. It tends to be fairly uh, conservative uh, in, a, you know, in the sense that it doesn't like to take risks. Uh, and, and will only resort to force when there is a 
a sort of quick and easy win in it for them. Um, and, and that's not the, you know, the new Russian imperialism that the Russia hawks want us to think is happening. Uh, it's, it's something much more restrained than that. And so uh, the, the good news is I think that that means that Russia isn't about to invade, uh, you know, in a full scale invasion. Uh, but it also means that a lot of the people that are working on Russia policy right now don't understand the first thing about what Russia is doing or why. And, and that can create dangerous situations. Right. Yeah. I mean, this keeps coming up that there's a real danger in there that they believe their own BS. You and I sit here and talk about what Kennan warned in the 90s. They don't even know about that. You and I talk about the coup in 2014. I think a lot of them, they were either in on it and want to downplay it, or it hasn't been in their interest as a flunky at the State Department to have been read into that loop. And they certainly didn't read it at Consortium News or Antiwar.com. And so they don't even know that actually, guess who helped to precipitate this crisis in the first place? You can't just... But, yeah, I mean, that's my biggest worry. If they're lying, then I'm a bit relieved. The degree to which they believe that the Russians truly are the aggressors and that they are desperately trying to defend Europe from them is, to me, the scariest thing in the world, you know? Right. Well, and the, you see some of that in, in the rhetoric you hear from I mean, people like Michael McFowl, who was uh, ambassador to Russia under Obama. And th this was even during the relatively good period or better period of relations uh, at the beginning of Obama's first term uh, when McFowl served there. Uh, but but McFowl is, is really, uh, I think, living in his own bubble, imagining that the, you know, there's no way that Russia could perceive NATO as a threat uh, when uh, NATO has been uh, taking actions that I, I think almost any other state would find provocative or, or dangerous in their vicinity if it were happening uh, to that state. So it's, I, I do I do think that there are a lot of people in Washington who have basically bought into their own propaganda to such an extent that they really can't see things the way that the Russians see them. And, and, that, and so that does create a, a dangerous situation, as I was saying, where uh, we, we end up sort of plowing ahead, thinking that we're, or you know, claiming that we're supposedly deterring them uh, from acting, uh, and they interpret that uh, simply as more aggressive posturing on our part, and so they react against it. Yeah. And and that's that's where you get uh, collisions that, that didn't have to happen, uh, but but end up being very dangerous and, and costly for all parties. Yeah. Uh, my my hope is that the Biden administration isn't. Full, isn't completely drinking the Kool-Aid on this stuff. Uh, they they do seem to at least be willing to engage in negotiations. Whether they're willing to actually offer any concessions or or make any compromises, I don't know. Um, my guess is they probably won't be, but but at least they're willing to to explore the possibility of finding an off ramp here, uh, because th there are a lot of people in D.C. Who, who don't want de-escalation in this situation. They want to use Ukraine as sort of a, a trap uh, to try to lure the Russians in and, and try to hurt the Russians by, by daring them to take military action. And I, you know, I just wrote about this in a separate piece, uh, uh, not, not in this recent column, but in a new piece that I just published on uh, my site, where I, it reminded me of how all of these hawkish types uh, wanted to use Syria to bleed Iran. And so let's stoke the civil war in Syria to bleed Iran and hurt Iran that way. And all that it did was kill a bunch of Syrians. 
The, the Iranians are fine as far as that is concerned. Uh, it, it didn't do very much harm to them, but it did do a lot of harm uh, to people in Syria. And I think that, you know Ukraine is being set up for the same kind of fall if hardliners get their way. And so my, my hope is that on this, uh, the hardliners are going to be rebuffed and we're going to get at least some kind of uh, compromise approach uh, coming from Biden, uh, which I you know would honestly be a, a nice surprise given his overall record. Yeah. Okay, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott here for EasyShip.com. Man, who wants to use Stamps.com? They're terrible. Their website is a disaster. I've been sending out tons of signed books to donors and friends lately, and it's clear. The only real alternative to standing in line for the 1990s technology at the post office is EasyShip.com. Preparing and printing labels with EasyShip.com is as easy as can be, and they are cheaper and better than Stamps.com. You can even send 100 free packages per month. Start out at scotthorton.org slash EasyShip. Hey, look here, y'all. You know I'm for the non-aggression principle and all, but you know who it's okay to kill? That's right, flies. They don't have rights. Fly season is here again, and that's why you need the Bug Assault 3.0 Salt Shotgun for killing flies with. Make sure you get the 3.0 now. It's got that bar safety on it so you can shoot as fast as you can rack it. The Bug Assault makes killing flies easy and fun. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Get the Bug Assault today. Just click the Amazon link in the right-hand margin at scotthorton.org. In fact, you can do all of your Amazon shopping through that link, and the show will get a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. Happy hunting. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, I think that uh, if it came down to the Russians conquering the eastern part of Ukraine, I don't think they'd have much of an insurgency. You know, they stop at the river, give or take Odessa, I don't know. But... I saw some of those demographic maps recently in one of those uh, David Stockman pieces when it comes down to breaking down the language separation and the nationality. I don't know really ethnic. I'm confused about that. They're all Slavs, aren't they? But they call them ethnic Russians. But at least, you know, nationalistically, they're, you know, many. And it's very divided geographically, east and west there. It seems like, um, of course, the far east of the country voted in a plebiscite to join Russia in 2015. And Putin told them no. And at that point, in the middle of the war, he could have just pulled out a black magic marker and changed the border of Russia the same way he did with Crimea. He could have just said, okay, fine. The Donbass is part of Russia now. And nobody could have done anything about it at that point. He didn't do that. Um, but if they think they're going to provoke a war so they can bleed the Russians in some Afghan war type scenario, then, um, boy, like you said... Yeah, they'll get a lot of people killed, but they won't accomplish that any more than they accomplished that in Syria. They're not bleeding in Syria. It's the Syrians who are. Well, that, that's right. So it's going to be, Ukrainians are going to be the ones paying the price for all of this you know, supposedly pro-Ukraine posturing. Uh, that, you know, there, there's a, this often happens in our foreign policy debates where the, the hardliners in D.C. are very eager to sacrifice the lives of people in other countries, uh, you know, much like they're willing to sacrifice the lives of American troops uh, for dubious causes. Uh, they, they have no problem uh, putting those people at risk uh, because uh, for them it, it's kind of like a, a glorified risk game. And so they, they, treat, it as, uh, they treat it as a game uh, where they'll, they'll use one country to try to undermine another uh, and, and somehow they think that that's going to advance their, their agenda, whatever that may be. 
Yep. Uh, one, one thing that we can say is that none of this, absolutely none of this has anything to do with making the United States or even its allies more secure uh, or, or better off. Uh, all, all of this is uh, extraneous, it's peripheral, it's, it's, it's really irrelevant to our, our core interests. And so it's, it's more proof that we, we have far too many commitments in the world. We're, we're reaching into places that we have no business being. And, and honestly, if we had not been mucking around in Eastern Europe as much as we have been, I, there probably wouldn't be a Ukraine crisis today. Yep. And, you know, I really love this quote that you have from Kennan from 92, talking about how we could have ended the Cold War uh, a long time ago and that all the threats and all the everything just prolonged the whole thing and not just the Cold War, but maybe even Soviet communism as well. Um, this whole process could have been sped up. In fact, you know, notably... It was, at least in the official history here, I think there's a lot to this, right? That it was when they stopped containing them and started encouraging them into overexpansion, like in Afghanistan and in Latin America and in Africa in the late 70s and early 80s, that that was really what helped to bring the Soviet Union down. The containment was helping to kind of sustain them. And then once they bought into these obligations, they realized they couldn't afford them. Um but, you know, I always quote this great Kennan uh, interview with Thomas Friedman in the New York Times from uh, and everybody. There's a link in here to uh, the one that Daniel's talking about. It's called uh, the GOP won the Cold War. Ridiculous um, in the New York Times from 92. Um, but there's the one from 98 where he's just beside himself about the NATO expansion and saying, you know, again, what you're talking about, that, um, you know, if we do this and and all the people uh, the russians will react and all the people now saying don't worry the russians won't react because this isn't against them and it'll be fine and maybe right. we'll even bring them into nato and who knows but it'll be no problem and dick cheney will never be the vice president or anything so who's worried about it and you know all this, those same people as soon as the russians do react to our expanding the military alliance then those same people will say see that's how the russians are and that's why they're so aggressive and we have to contain them again and defend Europe from them again. And then I think the quote from Kennan is, but that's just not right. You know, right. We're the ones doing this to them. And you know what? That's kind of the end of the argument, isn't it, Daniel? You'd think that, well, George Kennan said so. Who could argue with that? He's the American most in the position to say. And the fact that McNamara and people like that agreed with him at the time, it should be just absolutely the end of the argument, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, you would think so. I mean, Kennan, of course, knew Russia very well. He knew the Soviet Union very well. He, he had served in Moscow uh, as a diplomat, and uh, and he had his he and his family had extensive experience in understanding Russian history. Um, so he yes, he should have a lot of authority in these matters. Uh, but you know, unfortunately, it's it's sort of a measure of how U.S. foreign policy uh, devolved, if you want to say, uh, over the course of the Cold War. That were you know Kennan was at the very beginning taken very seriously and his and his views were given a lot of weight uh, as he continued continued to apply his analysis to our policies and found those policies wanting uh, people stopped wanting to listen to Kennan because he wasn't giving them the answers that they wanted and so he he opposed the Vietnam War uh, quite vociferously uh, and and said that it was a horrible mistake. Uh, he was a huge opponent of uh, the arms buildup and the arms race, uh, especially re with regard to nuclear weapons. 
and and so he he saw uh, militarism as a a real bane and and uh, a danger for this country and and he was railing against it for for decades uh, as he went into his the later years of his life and so you know, people might interview him and, and quote from him because he had this uh, status as a sort of great elder statesman but then uh, when it came to actually implementing policies they they went with uh, the the confrontational policies that they wanted and so it's you know I guess one of the the tragedies of U.S. foreign policy, uh, to, to borrow a phrase, is that people like Kennan stopped having influence over our foreign policy, because he, I think, he had a much better sense of what was possible and what was desirable in our foreign policy, and uh, we we really lost track of that, uh, even starting, at, you know, in the very first decade of the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, we, we kind of lost the plot. Right. You know, it's funny. Uh, we can do a lot of what ifs, and I think. For a lot of people, uh, you know, in my libertarian movement that I'm part of, um, kind of the beginning of wisdom is realizing that, man, the whole Cold War, too, really was bogus. We shouldn't have done that either in that. In fact, America's involvement in the world wars are questionable. Certainly World War One, and if you're really daring into World War Two, even maybe. And, and then you start going back and find out none of these things are really worthwhile uh, it never should have been this way, never had to be this way. Uh, it's essentially been, you know, a long line of George W. Bushes getting us into these wars and creating these horrible policies that uh, it becomes almost impossible, or or it becomes possible, I guess, once you start realizing all that, then it finally does become possible to begin to imagine the way it could have been instead. And in fact, forget the world wars and any of that. What if we just had the last 30 years back and we had Ron Paul had won the election of 88 instead of H.W. Bush? He ran in that election. (laughs) And what if if Harry Brown had taken over in 96 to build our bridge to the 21st century instead of Bill Clinton? And what if they had succeeded in just completely demilitarizing this country and insisting that America be a normal country in a normal time? Even better, a limited constitutional republic dedicated to the principles of the Declaration of Independence and things like that, that we could have really done that. And just the, never mind the opportunity cost in terms of economics, which are just unimaginable, but just the opportunity cost in happiness and in, in, uh, you know, all of the grief, all the chaos, all the suffering uh, that these people have caused for no good reason, that they just didn't have to at all this whole time. Uh, what a different world we would be living in right now if it hadn't have been for the Americans in charge making the decisions that they clearly did not have to make when they made them, you know? Right. Well, and, and I think that one thing to take away from the, the end of the Cold War and, and the, the decision that was made to keep all of the alliances intact, to keep all of the uh, power projection intact, uh, is that when you embark on something like a, you know, a multi-decade struggle or rivalry against another major power, uh, that creates all kinds of entrenched interests and that creates uh, lots of constituencies for uh, maintaining that status quo once it's created. And so when we see people agitating now for a new rivalry with China or, or even more rivalry with Russia again, or both at the same time, uh, we, you know, we have to understand that if they, well, once they start down that path, it's going to be even harder to dismantle those new 
uh, entrenched interests uh, once they get their claws in. Uh, and, and so the, the time to shut these things down is, is now before they really get going. And I, I'm already worried that with, with the rivalry with China that it may already be too late in the sense that there's very little dissent against this idea that we need to quote unquote compete with China. No one ever says what we're competing for explicitly, uh, but it's, but it's really, it's a contest for domination, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the implied meaning of it, that we're trying to dominate them and that if we don't, uh, then somehow or other, uh, we're supposed to be afraid that they will dominate us. And so this inevitably becomes a, a very uh, zero sum militarized competition uh, that leads to less liberty, uh, more expenses and more conflict. Right. And it's, it's just, uh, it's a dead end. And, and we've already seen where it leads. We, we don't, we don't have to imagine where it leads. We know what these policies lead to. Right. And you know, if I sound too utopian there, I mean, my counter to that would be that just spin the globe. There's not that many continents or countries to choose from to be your enemy. You know, there are no powers in Latin America, no powers in Africa. Egypt's the most important country in Africa, and we control it. <laughs> you know, all of Europe are our friends, including the Russians, I insist. Um, you know, there are rivals or something at absolute worst, but they're not our enemies. And the same for China. And what's India got to bring to bear? Nothing. And then that's it, right? What do you, wh who's next? The lost colony of Atlantis out there under the ocean? It, there's nobody left to be, to pretend to be afraid of. The Japanese are going to rise back up and reconquer East Asia. I mean, when they made that movie, they made a remake of Red Dawn and the Chinese objected to them making it about China. So instead they made it about North Korea taking over America. Well, first right. they took over South Korea, then they took over China, and then they just got all that loot for free once they did that, and then they just spent that invading North America. The North <laughs> Koreans did, <laughs> because who else are they going to blame it on at this point? Singapore is next? Australia? Those guys are looking at you funny, Daniel, the Australians. Right. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's and that's what they've, they've had to do uh, with every new... Uh, target around the world that, you know, they have to make these ridiculous claims about how dangerous they are, uh, in order to, to make it seem plausible that we should be afraid of them. And so, I mean, I, I don't know if you happen to read this, uh, New Yorker article about Iran, uh, but it was basically a glorified press release from CENTCOM, uh, that it just came out in the last week or two, uh, trying to build up, uh, and exaggerate how dangerous Iran is now. Uh, and, you know, certainly Iran has some missile capabilities that we've seen demonstrated, uh, but but they're very limited, and they're limited to their own region. Uh, the the idea that Iran poses a serious threat to U.S. security or even allied security is nonsense. Uh, but it's it's essential for maintaining funding and troop levels at CENTCOM that we believe that Iran is this great menace, and and they're simply not. And so we you know it, it gets pumped into um, or pumped out of media outlets uh, every day. Uh, where we're supposed to be terrified of these countries that are uh, far, far weaker than ours uh, and, and that don't actually even want to do us any harm uh, if we would mind our own business. Yep, got that right. And especially on Iran. I mean, I skip them because they hardly even come to mind when I'm trying to scare up a pretended rival. At least India's got a billion people. <laughs> you know, well, and, what's and Iran got? Nukes. 
right. India at least has nuclear weapons. Iran doesn't even have that, uh, although, you know, as much as people would like you to believe that they do or that they're going to have them, uh, they, they don't even have that. Right. Um, and, and boy, if they were trying, you'd think they'd have one by now. And well, that's I mean, considering how many decades have passed since we've been told that it's just a few years away, uh, you'd think that they would have one or more than one if they were really determined to get one. Uh, and the fact that they keep choosing not to do that, uh, I think is significant. And we really ought to take yes for an answer on this in that case and, and just let them be. Yep. And in fact, as you mentioned there with, uh, you know, the bleeding Iran and Syria strategy not working, of course, it's just made Syria more dependent on Iran than ever before. They were just friends. Now they're the tightest of allies. And Damascus, you know, depends heavily on Tehran's support. Um, and so uh, just like Iraq War II, in a sense, was meant to spite Iran. We can't really invade Persia, but if we get rid of Saddam Hussein, then that'll give us leverage over the Iraqi Shiites and that'll give us leverage over Iran. Wrong. You know, and then the war against uh, and all the intervention, you know, bribing Saleh so they could fight Al Qaeda in Yemen ended up empowering the Houthis, which they took as empowering Iran. So now, as long as they're bombing the Houthis, the Houthis are getting closer and closer to Iran all along. And they have more influence in Iran. I mean, pardon me, in Yemen than they ever did. It took them years. I think you know this. I'm sure you do. It took till 2000. Was it 18 or 19? I think it was 18. Um, still three years into the war before the Ayatollah invited the head Houthi to come to Tehran and officially recognized him as the government of that country, the first country to do so. It took three years into our war before the Iranians right. even got that close to him. Now more influence than ever before. So what are we going to do? Stop now? <laughs> oh, also, we fought for their friends, the Hazaras in Afghanistan for 20 years, but that didn't work. Um, uh, well, and, and with the, the the record of Iran hawks, the, the one thing you can be pretty much certain of is what, whatever it is that they want to do is going to redound to the benefit of the Iranian government uh, and the hardliners in that government uh, one way or another. And so if if you were interested in weakening that government and weakening the hardliners, you would pretty much consistently do the opposite of whatever Iran hawks recommend. Yep. Um, yeah, uh, the Ayatollah said... Uh, Ali Khamenei said, we thank Allah that he rendered our enemies imbeciles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. That makes things a little bit easier on you if you're trying to hold down Persia, right? Uh, well, and, and this is, it's a consistent problem that you see with hawkish approaches to other countries where when we have, uh, and I talk about this a little bit in the column, when we have confrontational policies and put these countries under siege, uh, it actually works to the benefit of the authoritarian leaders in those countries uh, in terms of their domestic standing and their, their ability to control their own country. Mm -hmm. uh, because then they can point to the foreign threat and use that to distract their own people uh, just the same way that our government here uses foreign threats to distract people uh, from their failures here at home. Right. And so it, it, uh, it is a – our hawkish policies are a boon to these other governments – and so uh, the, the, the worst thing that we could do, if you, if you wanted to undermine those governments or you wanted to weaken these leaders, the, the, the best thing you could do would be to pull the plug on all of these confrontational policies and deprive them of their enemy. Uh, as you probably remember, there was a, a quote from a Soviet official at the end of the Cold War uh, where he said, I think to his American counterpart, 
uh, we're going to do something terrible to you. We're going to deprive you of your enemy uh, with, with the end of the Soviet Union. And, and sure enough, it, it was kind of a, a terrible thing that they did because in depriving us of that enemy, uh, they sent us on this hunt uh, to find a new one. Uh, I, I think we, we would be much better off if we deprived all of these other states of their enemy by pulling back and, and stop antagonizing them on every front. Uh, and then we might actually start to see some desirable political changes in those countries uh, after all. Uh, as it is, uh, we're just strengthening their grip over their own peoples. Yep. Uh, works every time. All right. Well, listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming back on the show, Daniel. Great stuff as always, my friend. Thanks a lot, Scott. I appreciate it. All right, you guys. That is Daniel Larison. And boy, he got it right. U.S. militarism should have died with the Soviet Union at antiwar.com. The Scott Horton Show, Antiwar Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.